Hey everyone. So I'm going through the chronological Bible. I've hit 1 Kings 13. This is the part in the story of ancient Israel where they have officially fallen apart. Now, the story is very clear that this is decades and decades of disobedience coming into play. And the last straw was Solomon's son, his name was King Rehoboam, decided to double down on taxes, not listen to the pleas of the people and the needs of the people or the advice of the elders, and basically be a selfish jerk. So the nation of Israel, which was made up of 12 tribes, splits into northern and southern Israel. The kingdom has 10 tribes in the north, two tribes in the south. Now, the 10 tribes in the north immediately select a evil king. His name is Jeroboam. Sorry, his name is so similar to Rehoboam. They're both considered evil, but Jeroboam was kind of worse because he immediately convinced the 10 tribes to worship idols, never go worship in the real temple in, in Jerusalem, because of course that, that's in the southern kingdom and he didn't want them to be traveling south anymore. And basically he just really wanted to worship idols and do all the sin and craziness that that entailed. So that's the backstory. So in 1 Kings 13, we hear about a really unique prophet of God. He is not named, so we're going to call him the unnamed man of God or the unnamed prophet from Judah, which is, of course, in the southern kingdom. And the story contains his journey to the northern kingdom when God prompts him to go pronounce a prophecy of warning and judgment against Jeroboam, the king of the north. Okay, so I'm going to read this, and don't tune out. It's a whole chapter, but it's really important. By the word of the Lord, a man of God came from Judah to Bethel, as Jeroboam was standing by the altar to make an offering. Now, of course, this is an unauthorized, idolatrous offering. By the word of the Lord, he cried out against the altar, 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 this is what the Lord says. A son named Josiah will be born to the house of David, and on you he will sacrifice the priests of the high places who make offerings here, and human bones will be burned on you. That same day, the man of God gave a sign. Why did he have to give a sign along with this prophecy? Because this particular prophecy would not be completely fulfilled until, I think, either 300 or 350 years later. Timelines are not my strong suit. But to confirm that he's a real prophet of God, there needed to be a sign because in the Old Testament, I mean, in the Hebrew scriptures, there was a lot of really strict rules about prophecies and making sure they were true. So this sign was there to confirm. The altar will be split apart and the ashes on it will be poured out. So that's the sign that's going to happen immediately to confirm that the prophecy is going to happen later. When King Jeroboam heard what the man of God cried out against the altar at Bethel, he stretched out his hand from the altar and he said, seize him. But Jeroboam's hand shriveled up. He, he was paralyzed and he couldn't even pull his hand back. So the altar was then split apart and its ashes poured out according to the sign given by the man of God, by the word of the Lord. So what he says is going to happen in the sign happens, which means what he says is going to happen in the prophecy later eventually will happen. Then the king, Jeroboam, said to the man of God, forgive me because I have sinned against the God of Israel. No, he didn't say that. We all wish he had. He says, intercede with the Lord God and pray for me that my hand may be restored. Uh, <laughs> so he wants the use of his hand back, but he doesn't want to repent of worshiping idols. He knows that God is the only powerful God. He just has a free will and he doesn't want to repent. 
So the man of God interceded with the Lord and the king's hand was restored and became as it was before. Why? Because God's merciful. Even when we're not fully repentant, he may prompt a man of God or a prophet to intercede for you and heal you or restore you or help you out anyway, because that's how merciful he is. But usually there's a there's an expiration to that. <laughs> he gives us lots of time to get right with him, but it does expire in most people's stories. There's a there's an end to date if they're obstinately um, practicing evil consistently. So here's verse seven. Pay attention. The king said to the man of God, come home with me for a meal and I will give you a gift. But the man of God answered the king, even if you were to give me half your possessions, I would not go with you, nor would I eat bread or drink water even here. For I was commanded by the word of the Lord, you must not eat bread or drink water or return by the way you came. So he took another road. He did not return by the way he had come to Bethel. So far, the man of God from Judah gets an A plus for obedience. He delivered the word of warning and judgment, and he remembered that he was fasting until he got back to Judah. Now, there was a certain old prophet living in Bethel whose sons came and told him all that the man of God had done there that day. They also told their father what he had said to the king. Okay, so they told their dad, this old prophet from Bethel, who still serves Yahweh. He's in the minority, still serving Yahweh in this corrupt season of northern Israel's history. His kids come back and tell him, there's a man of God that just pronounced a judgment against Rehoboam and his sign came true. And the old man also probably heard the part from his kids where the man of God from Judah said, he's not allowed to eat or drink anything. They probably told him not to because it says his sons told him all that the man of God had done there. Okay, so they told him all. Their father asked them, which way did he go? And his sons showed him which road the man took. So he said to his sons, saddle the donkey for me. And when they had saddled the donkey for him, he mounted it and rode after the man of God. He found him sitting under an oak tree and he asked, are you the man of God from Judah? I am, he replied. So the prophet said to him, come home with me and eat. What? The man of God said, I cannot turn back and go with you, nor can I eat bread or drink water with you in this place. I've been told by the word of the Lord, you must not eat bread or drink water there or return by the way you came. The old prophet answered, I too am a prophet as you are. And uh, an angel said to me by the word of the Lord, bring him back with you to your house so that he may eat bread and drink water. But he was lying to the man of God. So the man of God returned with him and he ate and he drank in his house. Okay. So there's hints of the Eden story here of the fall. He knew the command. He rehearsed the command to the tempter. And yet he did what the tempter said. Anyway, he listened to his lying argument. And he took and he ate. So while they were sitting at the table, the word of the Lord came to the old prophet who had brought him back. Okay, so now the prophet gets a real word from God. He cried out to the man of God, this is what the Lord says. You've defied the word of the Lord and not kept the command that the Lord your God gave you. You came back and ate bread and drank water in the place where he told you not to eat or drink. Therefore, your body will be burned in the, will not be burned in the tomb of your ancestors. You won't have a proper burial. This was a big deal. This was a major judgment. When the man of God had finished eating and drinking, the prophet who had brought him back saddled his donkey for him. As he went on his way, a lion met him on the road and killed him. His body was left lying on the road with both the donkey and the lion standing beside it. Some people who passed by saw the body lying there with the lion standing beside the body and they went and reported it to the city where the old prophet lived because that's weird that the lion wouldn't eat either the man or the donkey. So when the prophet who had brought him back from his journey heard of it, almost done, 
He said, it's the man of God. The Lord has given him over to the lion, which mauled and killed him. The prophet said to his sons, saddle the donkey for me. And they did so once again. Then he went out and found the body lying on the road. The lion had neither eaten nor mauled, uh, eaten the body nor mauled the donkey. So the prophet picked up the body of the man, laid it on the donkey and brought it back to his own city to mourn for him and bury him. He laid the body in his own tomb and he mourned and said, alas, my brother. After burying him, he said to his sons, when I die, bury me where the man is buried. Lay my bones beside his bones. For the message he declared by the word of the Lord against the altar in Bethel and against the shrines on the high places in the towns of Samaria will certainly come true. Even after this, Jeroboam didn't change his ways. Okay, we made it through the chapter. If you zoned out, hit rewind, because that is the most important part. The scripture is the most important part. Sometimes my own brain, unfortunately, it's the hardest part to listen to when I'm listening to sermons and messages and teachings. But that's the story from 1 Kings 13. Now, the summary is two prophets destroyed each other. The old man, the old prophet from Bethel, used his seniority to convince the young man from Judah, who was also a legitimate prophet of God. They both were, but they were both compromised. They both weren't operating in total humility or obedience. And those areas of compromise interplayed and interacted with each other in a way that destroyed them both. Okay, so here's my commentary. Um, these were two genuine prophets. They recognized each other as God's servants. So the unnamed Judean prophet, the man of God from the South, here were his strengths, in my opinion. His strengths were he obeyed when he heard from the Lord right? To go confront Jeroboam. That's scary. He went and did it. He delivered the message. He showed the evil king mercy even when his hand was withered. Um, even after the king had commanded his, you know, subjects to like seize the prophet and the implication was to do him harm or kill him. He showed him mercy and uh, he refused the food and gifts from Jeroboam. Good. Good job, man of God from Judah. Weaknesses though, he did not double check. He didn't test the other prophet's word. He did not test the other prophet's word, even when it contradicted what God had told him directly. He got in the flesh. Okay. And it's understandable. The guy has been traveling, fasting, not even drinking water. This was a serious trip that he was on and it was towards the end of it. And he'd done the major part of the thing that he was supposed to do. And maybe, maybe he believed the guy was actually hearing from the Lord. Maybe he believed this was God's provision now that he's done with the task. Who knows? He just, he didn't obey. It may have seemed like God's allowance. Okay, so that's my analysis of the younger prophet from Judah. Now let's look at the older prophet from Bethel. His strengths were he recognized God's work through another prophet. That's good. He cared. He wanted to honor, it seems. The prophet from Judah. Now, the weaknesses, of course, were, were many on his part. He lied about getting a message from God. This is the number one thing you don't do as a prophet. You don't lie <laughs> saying something's from God if it's not from God. Okay, so those of us who maybe say we hear from God, maybe we have gotten words of knowledge before or prophecies before, maybe even we think we are a prophet. Maybe whether you believe that that's, that there are still people today who hold the office of a prophet like they did in the New Testament or not, maybe by some definition of the word you consider yourself or someone you know a prophet. 
Well, those of us who hear from God have to be so careful not to get too familiar with the idea because God often speaks in subtleties, impressions, dreams. He works with our imagination. He partners with us in communication. And so it can be a little tricky when you're so used to operating in the gift of prophecy and you want so badly maybe to help someone who's hungry and thirsty that's just done something for the Lord. Or maybe you're just wanting to see something happen so much, like a healing or a deliverance or a a breakthrough in someone else's life. Maybe your motives are pretty good, but be careful not to claim that something's coming from God if if it's just you really wanting it to. It's so easy to wish a word from the Lord. And I've seen even really good people do this. Even people who love the Lord so much do this. But the prophet from Bethel, the older prophet, he went against God's will for another person. Okay, it was God's will that the man of Judah go all the way back home, hungry and thirsty. All right, so when you get a group of prophets in a room, really great things can happen, really powerful moments of worship and victory can happen. But the temptation to conjure or to self-will is always there, and we must continually be humbling ourselves and refusing to speak things that aren't from God, even things that are, you could pull scriptures to support it, or it sounds like something that God has said before. You have to be so careful to not call those prophecies and to not speak as though the Lord is telling you something when, when he's not, okay? Now, to move into the last part of this longer than normal teaching about prophets, I thought it might be helpful to talk a little bit about the prophets of the narrative in the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures. The prophets were a big deal. They spoke for the Lord. Now, a lot of what I'm about to say, you can see a really cool summary of, and I totally credit the Bible Project. They have a video called Reading the Prophets, and it explains a lot of what I'm going to repeat from it and summarize here. The Old Testament prophets were Israelites who had unique roles in announcing God's will throughout the biblical narrative. They started off their prophetic journey or career or whatever you want to call it, calling, with a dramatic encounter with God. And this was during a time when that wasn't available to everyone yet. God's presence encountering them in in a profound way. Then they were commissioned. They were commissioned to speak on God's behalf. So they were commissioned as prophets. Often prophets, their prophecies, their announcements were about the partnership, the covenant that God wanted to develop with the nation, the kingdom of Israel. The prophets would bring charges or accusations against the nation of Israel when it would break the partnership, the covenant. They would often include calls to repentance, and they would cite God's mercy, and they would announce consequences at times. Much of the recorded prophecy that we have access to and look back on is poetic. It's layered. It uses Eden imagery, right? That There's this new garden state coming that restores humanity to the Eden status, returning from exile, and that God would send a Messiah to accomplish this restoration to the Eden state. Prophets were not always well accepted by the general Israelite population. Sometimes they were. Some of them were well-spoken 
and popular. Others were weird and marginalized and quirky and asked by God to perform strange signs to get his point across. Sometimes they were ignored. They were often under-considered, and uh, the Israelites were called stubborn by a lot of them. The prophets were shunned sometimes by the leaders, at least until their warnings like started to get fulfilled later. So in the, the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, there are 15 books of the prophets. They're arranged in such a way by some prophets that came after them to communicate this overall arching story of God turning Israel's tragic story of failure into a redemption story and a restoration for all nations. There's always a hope that's communicated in how all the prophecies are arranged. And I would say that when you prophesy, your message should always contain hope. Even if it contains a little bit of warning, sometimes it should always contain hope because the gospel message contains hope. When we're speaking the truth of God, it contains hope. There's a restoration coming to the Eden status that we're all invited into. Those were the main things I was going to say. So it was interesting to read this story about two prophets of God from different parts of the divided Israelite kingdom encountering each other. And even though they recognized God for who God was, even though they often obeyed and delivered God's word, they ran into this situation where they disobeyed. And you can't mess with that if you are a prophet. He, uh, God had to give them very strict consequences for their disobedience because they were doing something very important for the world and for the course of history and because God is holy. So when he commissions someone to speak on his behalf in the Hebrew scriptures, they are set apart in a unique way. So tragic story very fascinating and under-addressed story. I'd love to know your thoughts, what you think, why this was included, this part about how he died so unfavorably after disobeying on something that some could consider small. I think where it, where it is in the story of the Israelites' disobedience and the coming consequences of the Babylonian exile that result there's a sense of magnitude, there's a heaviness, there's a weightiness to these accounts of God, the people of God's um, disobedience. There's a sense of, it's sobering, I would say. So in those ways, I'm glad I, I read these stories. I'm glad I have these reminders to just get on my face before holy and righteous God, who's been working to redeem people and bring people into his presence for centuries and centuries. And not to presume that I know what kind of role I'm supposed to have in the coming of this kingdom, but rather to really, really listen and really get good at hearing God's presence because I don't want to get it wrong. Now, that's not a fear thing. Like It's more of a um, surrendering my will thing. I don't think that I would you know, get struck dead by a lion if I got something wrong on accident. We're not operating in that type of ancient situation anymore. We all have, we're in the age of grace and we all have 
any of us who would want to have the Holy Spirit indwelling us. And there's such a freedom with that. There's such a relief and such a joy with that. So those are my thoughts. Let me know if you think that prophets exist today, if it's the same or different, and what you think of the story. Bye, guys.